0: It's Tuesday, May the 3rd, and welcome back to Goodfellows, a Hoover Institution broadcast examining social, economic, political, and geopolitical concerns. I'm Bill Whalen. I'm a Hoover Distinguished Policy Fellow. I'll be your moderator today. Joined as usual by two of our three good fellows, That would be the economist John Cochran and the geostrategist, Lieutenant General H.R. McMaster. They are Hoover Institution Senior Fellows. Normally, we're joined by Neil Ferguson. He has the week off for good behavior, but stepping in for him and elevating our conversation as to regards warfare in Ukraine our guest, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges. About our guest, General Hodges is a 1980 graduate of West Point, which means he missed an opportunity to haze the young plea by HR McMaster by one year. He is an infantry officer by trade. General Hodges also served at the 101st Airborne. He was an instructor at the United States Army Infantry School. He's war tested having commanded the 1st Brigade of the 101st Airborne and Operation Iraqi Freedom. General Hodges would go on to serve as Director of Operations of Regional Command South in Kandahar, Afghanistan. His final post was that of Commanding General of the United States Army Europe, a position he held for three years before retired from active duty in 2018. General Hodges holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center for European Analysis, which is a DC-based think tank. He writes in comments on NATO defense expenditures and European security. General Ben Hodges, welcome to Goodfellows. Uh, what a privilege to join y'all. Thank you. Thanks. I should add, by the way, that the General is doing this out of the kindness of his heart. He is in West Germany right now and is the dead of the night. So, General, you're indeed a good soldier. So question for you, sir. Um, tomorrow marks 70 days of fighting in Ukraine. And the following Monday, May the 9th, is what is called Victory Day in Russia that's commemorating the 1945 defeat of Nazi Germany. I imagine we'll see a lot of the pomp and ceremony we're accustomed to on the day, which is Russian troops marching through Red Square, General uh, Hodges. But here's the question, when the tone and the tenor of that event, are we going to hear Putin and Russian leaders talk about denazifying Ukraine or is it time to look at a switch in the Russian message and maybe ultimately Russian tactics, which is focusing on the West, which is one of the reasons why Putin wanted to begin with, he said. He was concerned about Ukraine being dominated by NATO. So are we going to see a switch uh, in Russian thinking from focusing on Ukraine to no focusing on the evil West? I, I think it's gonna be
1: a little bit of uh, all of that, Bill. First, they will, of course, remind all of the Russian uh, population Uh, their victory over the Nazis and fascism, and that what's happening in Ukraine today is, from the Kremlin perspective, a continuation of that. So he's got to continue to maintain domestic support for what they're doing. Um, So that'll be part of the messaging going on. Secondly, I I expect that they will uh, claim credit for liberating millions of Ukrainians from uh, this Nazi fascist government in Kyiv. Uh, and therefore, Luhansk and Donetsk and large parts of, the, of Kherson will be declared as liberated and possibly uh, annexed and now part of Russia. They're already, of course, requiring people to use ruble uh, there uh, for basic things. Right. And also several of them will be impressed into Russian military. And the, the third thing that they're going to do, though, I anticipate is uh, some sort of horizontal escalation. to to widen the conflict, uh, at least in tone, uh, in order to put pressure on our alliance to to try and cause, to break up the unity that the administration has helped to to build, to to attack that, uh, because that is our center of gravity. And so I think those are the three main sort of themes we're going to see.
0: And is that as simple as lobbing a cruise missile? Let's say, in other words, if Putin gets increasingly frustrated by what's happening in Ukraine, what's stopping Russia from, say, lobbing a cruise missile into Poland and the point of entry for weapons going into Ukraine? Is that is that what you mean by the further escalation?
1: Well, that is that is one of the scenarios that some people are, are uh, considering as a possibility that, that he would actually go after one of these uh, logistics hubs that are being used to bring things into Ukraine but I mean, that would be um, the, the only way I could see them doing that would be if they believe that enough members of NATO would say, hey, no way. We're not going to we're not getting into a nuclear war over Ukraine. It was our fault. I mean, that's the, the sort of Kremlin fairytale that they would like to uh, uh, to promulgate. Uh, but I think that wiser people will say the president of the United States could not be more clear. We will defend every square inch of NATO. And if they were to, to try something like that, uh, what I'm pretty sure is that the, the joint chiefs of staff or the joint staff have given the president several options for all of these kind of things that don't have to be nuclear response. There could be massive kinetic strike. There could be a massive cyber strike that would uh, wipe out Russia's financial sector. So we've got so many more advantages than they do. And, and I, I would imagine that that's being communicated to the Kremlin.
2: Well, I would guess that the first step that they would, so we're, as we start sending more uh, weapons in, I would think the Russians first step would be to start attacking by conventional means, the uh, ways that the weapons are getting in within Ukraine, uh, and then ratchet that up uh, long before we start talking about lobbying a nuke into Poland, which I, I wanna get back to, right?
3: Dan, would you make, would you mind just sharing some of the other scenarios? You know, I know we, we've been watching what was going on in Tr- Trans with these apparent false flag explosions. You know, the blowing up the the bridge bl- being blown up in the in the uh, in the approach to uh, Odessa. I mean, he probably would like to do something in Odessa, but he, he just got a few more uh, naval vessels sunk. Uh, in in the Black Sea, so what do you on the on in your scenario of horizontal escalation? What else can can Putin do with his limited resources?
1: Yeah, actually, I think they do not have a lot more capability. So, John, to your question, if they could, they would be disrupting the lines of communication, but they they can't. I mean, uh, first of all, they don't have the uh, precision munitions stocks to to keep doing that. Um, they're you know, Bellingcat the other day estimates, estimated that the Russians were down below 30 percent remaining of precision munitions because they, they have expended so many so far. And because of sanctions, uh, they no longer get all the components needed to make new ones. So they can't re, they can't make good what they have expended in terms of precision munitions, which would be required to if you're talking about destroying railways and, and, and those sorts of things. Um, secondly, they don't have a, what we would call a dynamic targeting capability where you can cue to targets of opportunity and then follow up with the strike. To be honest, um, they're very dangerous, but they're not that good at, at, at this kind of action. I mean, uh, I had expected all along that we would be seeing Russian special forces, you know, creeping around there blunt. It's just not happening. And it's not because they don't want to, it's because I don't think they can.
2: I'm sorry, there's two scenarios that I think we need to uh, spread apart. One is, what can they do to get an offensive going again, which I think is what we started talking about, and maybe nothing, and so they're kind of stuck. The next question yeah. is, suppose that they start losing. <laughs> what do they do if, they're, if the Ukrainians start winning and pushing them back out? Mm. So uh, I believe that this second big grand offensive
1: is actually already started. And what we're seeing and it's seeing is about the best that they can do. Uh, this this nine May uh, milestone that Bill brought up at the beginning, uh, I, I think that the Kremlin is putting pressure on the general staff to get going and to have something to deliver before they were ready. I mean, the damage that they suffered in the first uh, several weeks of this phase of the conflict was so severe. It it takes a lot of time to reconstitute units and move them around, especially if you weren't already anticipating the requirement to do so. So they had to start from zero to begin rebuilding units, uh, ammunition, replacing losses, uh, replacing leaders, all of that. So, <clears throat> excuse me. The uh, I, I think they started really before they were ready, and so what we're seeing. Um, also is a manifestation that they may not have learned or made the most important adjustment necessary, which is to focus your main effort at some place and then overwhelm the Ukrainians with all of your capabilities. Instead, they're attacking along this 300-mile kind of arc, and so they've got no real serious depth to be able to, to uh, overwhelm the Ukrainians.
2: So if it's just... So May 9th. You could declare victory and try to try to have it end, but the Ukrainians don't necessarily want to, want it to end on May 9th. Well, the, I, I don't think they're going to declare victory, but they're going to take they're going to declare credit for we
1: did this, this, and this. And the only audience that matters to them then, of course, are Russians. Um, but the Ukrainians are absolutely not going to be done. And the fact that Secretary Austin has said, United States is we're here for Ukraine to win. And, you know, Secretary Austin is uh, very deliberate in how he speaks, and that wasn't him speaking off the cuff. I mean, that's obviously a policy decision by the United States, by the administration, and to weaken the Russians enough that they can no longer threaten their neighbors. These are two really big um, uh, policy decisions. And then the $33 billion to back it up, which apparently has strong bipartisan support, the, the U.S. is in this for the long haul, and I think most of our allies are also.
3: Ben, I think you should take partial credit for that. I remember a couple of weeks ago, you were on Face the Nation, and you said, hey, what we need is we need determination to win.
1: I would say that I don't hear the administration talking about winning. I'm reluctant to say that the administration doesn't want them to win. But what what needs to be stated is what what is our objective, the United States? You know, we're not just uh, observers cheering for Ukraine here. This is about democracy across Europe and stopping an autocracy.
3: Right after that, but I don't know what the cause and effect is there, but we we did commit uh, to to provide a much broader range of weapons capabilities to the Ukrainians. So I would like to ask you to, to talk about something we don't ever hear about, What's your assessment of the Ukrainian military? As you sir, Commander, you know you had a big role in in helping to train Ukrainian forces and 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 coach their their leaders and to help them prepare their defenses and look at the war plans. And right. hey, what, what's your assessment of the Ukrainian side of this? Are they gaining strength? Will they be able to to marshal the strength to defeat this offensive, which is getting concentrated more and more in the northeast? I mean, I saw the reports today; they're pulling some of these kind of Chewed up battalion tactical groups out of the the investment of Mariupol and moving them to the northeast. So, can Ukrainians hold? And then, can they counterattack? You know, what's your assessment on the of the Ukrainian side?
1: So, uh, on the on the negative aspects of the Ukrainian side, the the logistics, uh, the the distribution network inside of Ukraine is is not prepared for what they're having to do right now. So even though we, all of us may commit to delivering all these howitzers and stuff, the real metric is how fast does it get into the hands of a Ukrainian artillery regiment to be able to use it, or the javelins, or the various other uh, uh, contributions. So I, I worry about the logistics distribution network inside uh, Ukraine. and And this is an area where I think we ought to be reconsidering our policy about whether or not we put people inside Ukraine to help with that. Um, The other sort of negative is that they still, uh, they got started too late, not too late, they got started way late on standing up the Territorial Defense Force. I mean, we've got about 200,000 people in the Territorial Defense Force. That's, That's more people than the Russians have in all of Ukraine. So that's a lot of people, but that doesn't mean that they're trained and ready yet. So we're playing a little catch up here. And thirdly, um, I, I do worry that we're running out of ammunition um, on the Ukrainian side, particularly for their Russian-made systems, the 122 millimeter and 152 millimeter. So uh, that that's a problem in certain areas. On the plus side, there's no doubt in my mind that Ukraine is going to end up winning when this is all said and done. Um, that they are defending their homeland. So, you know, Napoleon said the moral is to the physical as three is to one. Clearly, the moral and the test of wills, U- Ukraine has the advantage here. Uh, and soldiers literally are defending their families who are in the village behind their trench line. So that helps. The Another thing that's been uh, interesting to me how tech savvy the Ukrainians are. Uh, they've this mythology that, oh, it'll take them too long to learn how to use something is absolutely false. They they are very good at uh, learning how to use new things. And the last thing, which is counterintuitive, um, they have adopted a Western-style command and control methodology, which is very decentralized. Uh, you would think that after decades of being part of the Soviet military and the education, I think the last and I don't want to overstate this, but the last 20 years where they spent with us in Iraq and Afghanistan, all the training that we've been doing together uh, and out of necessity, they became a much more decentralized where colonels and captains are making decisions, not having to have the the general officer come down to make decisions. So they will they, they will launch a counteroffensive, I believe, within the next uh, months to two. Uh, Because I think the Russians actually are going to culminate uh, again. And uh, at some point, that balance is going to change. And I hope that the Ukrainians, I believe they are are trying to build up a a large counterattacking force, keeping it out of the fight, which means you have to take some risk in order to shepherd, uh, to build up a force that could, in fact, go over to the offense.
2: Win means push the Russians all the way back, uh, certainly. What I've hoped for, but it's an interesting thing to contemplate uh, how Russia takes it if they start losing in the sense of last Russian boot out of, and I mean, even Crimea. Uh, so I'll be curious on, on your view of what happens in Russia if they start winning. I'm also curious on your views, both of your views. Uh, you said, you know, the US is in it to fight to win. We've, we've proclaimed some pretty lofty goals, including regime change in Russia, uh, weaken the Russian Russian permanently. Um, but we, and we tend to do this. And $33 billion is actually not a lot of money. Didn't we spend a trillion in Afghanistan uh, and a couple trillion in Iraq? $33 billion is, it sounds like a lot, but it's catch change in Washington. And I wonder uh, if we are in this for the long haul. I mean, uh, I mean, I certainly hope we are, and I hope Western Europe is, but we have a pretty bad history of early enthusiasm and then um, and getting tired of it, let's say Afghanistan, Iraq, uh, Vietnam even. And uh, uh, I, I would worry that you know, if, if this is a long war and drags through the next presidential race or whatever, uh, that, that we'll, get, uh, we'll get tired of it. What do you guys think on, bo- on both issues? So what does Russia do if they start losing? And does the US finally have the stomach to stick to it through what, what may be actually a longish war?
3: What do you? What do you go first? I mean, I mean, you know, you you've you know, you're living in Berlin, right? And so Frankfurt, Frankfurt, Frankfurt. Okay, so so you're living in Frankfurt, and and uh, and so John's the first part of his question has to do with will, like our will, right. right? And man, we saw not only the U.S. be you know now finally responding with you know with the kind of weapons they need, but we saw Germany kind of turn on a dime, right? You know, after the, after the invasion. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to hear your assessment about, as John's asking, about our will and, of course, what the Russians do when they start losing. But what, what about European will, German will? And I know this is something that you look at a lot in, in your position in the Center for European Policy Analysis. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on it.
1: So uh, the White House says that winning equals uh, full restoration of Ukrainian territorial sovereignty. So that includes Donbass and Crimea. I support that 100%. President Biden said Ukrainian sovereign uh, territorial integrity is a priority for the United States. He said that a year ago in his first conversation with President Putin. So this is not late breaking news. This this is a uh, a way ahead and, and I think the president puts this in within the context of democracies versus autocracy. And I think also uh, and John I take your point these are lofty goals but I think in in the reality um, he's He knows that the Chinese are watching this and that if the United States, with all of our allies and all of our advantages, if we cannot stop Russia, a Russia that is not even able to defeat Ukraine, then the Chinese are not going to be terribly impressed with uh, much of what we might say. And and also the North Koreans are watching that if if our alliance freezes in place just because Russia threatens to use a nuclear weapon... That, that'll be a dangerous signal to North Korea as well. So there
2: Iranians are, are watching too. <laughs> go
1: and so anybody that has a nuke or wants to get a nuke is, is going to go to school on all this. So there are a lot of reasons why it is important that um, Ukraine is successful here, wins. Uh, and I, I would just, the difference maybe with uh, this and what, multiple administrations did or didn't do in Afghanistan and Iraq was the win word. Never did we ever talk about winning as policy in Afghanistan or Iraq. It was complied. We talked around it, but never win. And so when I think you have to be, we have to be realistic. There's a near term, which Russians back to the pre-24 February line, to me, this is entirely doable within the next six months mm-hmm. if we follow through on everything that we've said, that the Russians can be driven out. I, I tell you, I believe they are hollow. Um, the the longer part is gonna require a long-term commitment to this full restoration of basically, we're talking about Donbass and Crimea. Um, I don't think it'll take the 40 years that it took for reunification of Germany. Uh, I don't think Russia itself is really going to last another five years. So this this is um, what I think winning is. And also, you have to add in, the Ukrainians will expect a return of the half a million uh, citizens who were kidnapped and deported, that they are all brought back back home uh, to Ukraine. Now, when Secretary Austin said we want to weaken the Russians to the point that they can no longer threaten their out their neighbors, um, I did not take that to mean that we're going to go inside Russia. And, I mean that's a whole different thing. But I think the the fact that Russians their their economy is obviously going to be in tatters for quite some time. And I would defer to you on this. But if the sanctions remain in place, um, decisions that the Kremlin made to uh, cut off Poland and Bulgaria from gas because they refused to pay in rubles. That's going to backfire. I mean, that's just only going to accelerate people moving away from Russia as a source, as well as from carbon fuel as a type. Um, their population, 140 million. That's that's nothing
3: for a country that size. Yeah. And a huge brain drain going on now too, right, Ben? I mean, yeah, exactly. you know, the tech sector's getting decimated.
1: So I think that when this test of will that we can spin them into the dirt. We, we I mean, right. it, it's not inevitable that Russia doesn't lose. I, I believe they do.
2: No, and, now, if, and if they lose, I, I think it, it keeps going. So the Ukrainians have no compunction about going into Russian territory. In
0: fact, all sorts of things are blowing up in Russia for strange reasons right now. Yeah, but that, let's get back to the victory question, uh, which Sean brought up. Um, you can see Putin declaring victory by getting some breakaway republics in, in the Donbas, but what about Zelensky? How can Zelensky declare victory if he hasn't booted per what John said, if he hasn't kicked the Russians off Ukrainian soil? Are we gonna see are we gonna see Ben in the next few months if it's carried out? Is NATO gonna start pressuring Zelensky saying it's time to cut a deal? I think that um, there probably are some countries
1: that would, you know, when I hear people say the most important thing is stop the fighting, you know, mm-hmm. that that really gives me a heartburn because that's not the most important thing. Uh, the most important thing is protecting, you know, our values, protecting democracy and making sure that all our other adversaries don't walk away from this thinking that they can get away with whatever they want to as well. I, I do think that president Zelensky right now um, has the, enough support from his own country to, I mean, they, I think they feel that, all the trends are moving in the right direction for them mm-hmm. and that a, l- a little bit further, they're going to be at a much better negotiating position. And, and so um I think that's why the admin and, and of course, having the U S administration say, you're going to win, we're going to help you win. There, there's no reason for president Zelensky at this point to take a, a bad settlement I, that I think would probably be uh political suicide for him as well.
0: And as you're in Germany, what's your sense as to the NATO allies willingness to play the long game here? How long will they continue to well, or this, ammunition this, to the
1: Ukraine? This is a real question, but at Le- Germany, you know, just recently announced uh, that they would support an EU oil embargo. Right. But that's not gas, but that's oil. So that's that's an important step in the right direction. Interestingly, Uh, unlike when HR and I were very young officers, the Greens today, I mean, they're the war party. This is the the three toughest German senior politicians are uh, Minister Habeck, uh, the Foreign Minister Baerbach, and Norit Omipur, who's a member of the the Bundestag, the parliament. These are the three most serious security hawks uh, inside the government. And um, the, the fact that the Bundestag voted overwhelmingly to support the delivery of armored vehicles, that's, that's a big deal, I think. Now, um, you still have a large part of the German population. Um, they are uh, very concerned about escalation. Uh, you have a, a pacifist uh, element of the society that's there because World War II is still fresh in the minds of many people, either because they're, they're old enough to be kids um, or their parents were. And so this, this is still a very real thing for them. Um, but most of the Germans that I speak to, the vast majority um, are outraged at what Russia has done. And you hear, le- I hear less and less and less of people saying, well, that was NATO's fault. I used to hear that a lot, I hear a lot less Now, I think the images coming out of Bucha really
2: changed uh, attitudes. I could give it to the Ukrainians for really mastering the uh, the propaganda war here. But, you know, I I think that uh, as usually our historian. The lesson of history is people are all in and have lots of will until things get hard uh, and until, uh, you know, something bogs down until your soldiers start coming home dead until the economy uh, turns. Uh, I, I think actually the economic analysis I've seen says that they, they can turn off the oil and gas fairly painlessly, fairly, you know, a, a small recession, but not something big. So, uh, you know, I am I, with you that we probably keep the will because it's hard for me to think of a way that this becomes really, really painful for the West. Unless, now, now let's think scenarios. Um, I think you're right, Zelensky's not gonna take anybody's truce, at least so long as weapons are coming in from, from the West. He wants every Russian soldier out of everything, including Crimea, as we promised in the 1990s. Uh, so it's very hard for us to say, you need to stop if you're winning. Uh, so, he, but, but let's, let's, you know, let's you know, game, game this out. Uh, if Russia loses and their soldiers are driven out, um, many of them killed uh, in, of Ukraine. Belarusia is starting to get restive too. Uh, you can see protests coming up there. Uh, you can see things starting to go really bad inside Russia. The Russian economy tanks for um, all sorts of reasons, including our sanctions. So let's get back to, what does Putin do at this point? There is the option they've talked about, launch a tactical nuclear weapon, uh, You know, blow up maybe something in, in Ukraine, uh, kill 50,000 people or so. Um, as I see it, and here I'm gonna ask your view, the intent would be for the West to say, oh no, we must stop. But I think that would be the Pearl Harbor moment at which NATO says, the heck with this, this is our fight now, uh, sinks the entire Black Sea fleet, uh, as, as you said, starts uh, attacking uh, Russia's ability to at least move stuff to Ukraine inside Russia. We have an overwhelming ability to win this on a conventional scale. So that, that sounds good till I go, what does Putin do next? And if Putin's down to uh, his own survival, um, blowing up a capital of a European city sounds like something he might do. Now, I'd like to not get to that branch of the game tree. And, and so how does Russia lose without getting to that, uh, that right. branch of things? Well... Of course, uh, I don't have a crystal ball, but- uh, and, and No, but no you, you got all the, this is what you guys are great at, what I love you guys. In, in, in economics, you know, the Fed always says, here's what's going to happen, here's what we're going to do. And I always hold you guys up as, as paradigms at all our monetary costs. No, no, talk to my general buddies, because they think about every possible thing that could happen, and, they, and they, you know, they're, they're ready for risk.
1: <laughs> so uh, Putin is evil and is brutal. Uh, but I don't believe he's crazy. Um, I don't believe he wants to be, you know, go down in history as the uh, Nero of of Russia. Um, and I also think that uh, there are people around him that are imagining life. There will be life after Putin. And um you know, he can't just have a bad day and start punching buttons in his office. I mean, there's a system around him just like the way there is around the American president. And um, I'm not so sure that every, all of his uh, the people who sit at the far end of that long table in his office are so keen to uh, to blow it all up.
2: Now on a practical no, yeah, step- by the way, I want, I want to get, this is three steps down. Down the I mean, there are all sorts of good signs that we see. One, Russia is paying back its debts. It is trying to uh, Russify the, the the areas that it controls. So it clearly wants to see a future where it. it I, I think its off ramp is we take this Donbass and that's that's it. The question is what happens when things turn really bad for them, they start losing, it gets rested. Yeah, we can hope that someone uh, gets rid of Putin inside Russia uh, and that the generals say no when the order to push the button comes. Okay, so um, the,
1: there is no, first of all, you're not going to kill 50,000 people with a tactical nuclear weapon unless you dropped it inside a football stadium and they were all there. But the the effectiveness, the blast effect of most tactical nuclear weapons is not like a a Hiroshima type weapon system. So there's no battlefield advantage for them to employ a tactical nuclear weapon.
2: They
1: they, they could not. Well, I don't even I don't agree with that. They they could not destroy Mariupol or terrorize people any more than they already have. You already got 11 million people. Right. Have left their homes because of, because of what's going on. And I think that um, the, it would be impossible for the United States and other countries to stand by, to not get involved if Russia were to use a nuclear weapon. That didn't mean our response would be nuclear, but that this would so change the character of the conflict that it would be impossible not to step in that, that's and that's guessing.
2: overwhelming conventional response th- this uh, is what
1: the this is what the f-35 was invented for just this uh, about five days and everything that russia has uh on the ground in ukraine and probably even their black sea fleet are gone and i think that um, the general staff is well aware of that or and or you, you know us and uk uh, offensive cyber capabilities just would completely overwhelm whatever the Russians think they can protect, including everybody's bank accounts. I mean, there's there's no doubt that they could devastate that. So this is why I think it's just so unlikely that Russia um, is gonna do it. Now, I've been wrong about 25 other times over the last nine weeks on things. So um, th- this is why the communication from the White House it's so important about making it clear because if we look like we're waffling, then I think the risk goes up.
3: Ben, I was going to say I hope, I hope we're done talking about what we're not going to do, right? And 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 I do think that Putin's got to know that hey, if you use a nuclear weapon, it's basically a suicide weapon. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, that the response uh, to that can be conventional; it doesn't have to be nuclear. Hey, I was just going to ask you ask you another question, Ben. Hey, how how come we didn't see more Russian cyber? Right, the first time in history that cyber, uh, offensive cyber was used to support a conventional attack was in Georgia in 2008. You know, the, the, the Russians have been honing their offensive cyber capabilities since 2007 when they went after Estonia. You know, we had the NotPetya attacks in 2014 uh, against, against uh, Ukraine. Everybody thought it was going to get really bad. This would be an area where he could have what you talked about at the beginning, this kind of horizontal escalation. Why, why do you think, and I know you and I don't see classified anymore, you know. but why, why haven't we seen uh, you know, Russian cyber prowess at work?
1: I, I'm going to offer three possible explanations. Uh, number one, uh, Ukraine, everybody was prepared much better than uh, we might otherwise have been. The Estonians have been in and out of Ukraine a lot in the previous months helping to shore things up. Uh, but I also I did ask the uh, head of the Russian or uh, the Ukrainian uh, gas company that manages all the gas there, and I said, are you, and I, I was in Kiev like ten days before this all started, um, and I said, uh, are you worried about cyber? And he laughed. He goes, no man, we are completely analog. It's people turning giant wheels, so they couldn't shut it down if they wanted to um, with a cyber strike on the on the gas. But um, I think there was preparation. Uh, The second thing is uh, I think the Russians, this is connected to their um, over-optimistic approach towards what was going to happen. I mean, when I saw President Zelensky walking around with a cell phone on day four, my first thought was, how cool. And then I thought, how the hell is this cell phone still working? How can his phone possibly be working At this time, why have the Russians not shut down everything? And then when you start seeing all these Russian generals killed, it's because they're talking on their cell phone on Ukrainian cell network because the Russians needed to use it. Uh, They don't have an effective mission command network that they take into battle with them. So they were clearly planning on using Ukrainian cell service, Ukrainian networks, and I think this is part of the explanation of why they didn't you know, crush it all. And then the third thing, I think they know, uh, whether it was communicated or not, that the US uh, could uh, launch a cyber counterstrike that would totally disable um, big giant sectors so, inside Russia. So I, those are the three sort of reasons I think, because I, I really did expect them to w- wipe it all out.
2: So I was reading it, I don't know if you, maybe you can confirm or deny this, that the Russians actually did have a, a, a plan which involved, um, ele- they have a big electronic countermeasures thing which managed to blind their own side completely. The Ukrainians quickly adopted the Skylink technology which continues to work. And so the stories is these poor Russian tankers are out there with Soviet era paper maps because their GPS doesn't work because their own electronic countermeasures blinded the whole thing.
3: Well, I think that I think and, you know, I think there's something to that. And then also, Ben, I would just add too. I think the Ukrainians are pretty darn good at offensive cyber as well. And and I guess you know we, we probably wouldn't know for years from now. But what was done offensively against Russia to preempt, you know, some of their some of the Russian offensive capabilities? I, I don't doubt that. Yeah.
0: So I'm curious, a question for our two three star generals. If you were teaching a class on this to John Cocker and myself, another layman when it comes to military strategy, would you focus more on Russian failures or Ukrainian successes? And I'm curious as to your thought. What is it the uh, Sun Tzu said, or famously didn't say, "What all wars are uh, won or lost before they're fought." Uh, I don't know if you agree with that sentiment or not. But in other words, did did Russia lose this war before it began fighting the war? Did Ukraine win the war before again fighting? Or is this a case of the two powers adjusting on the fly, and one adjusting well and the other one adjusting poorly?
1: Well, I think um, if I was to have to teach a class on this, I, 50% of it would be dedicated to logistics. Uh, the, the ammunition consumption is just through the roof compared to our experience of the last 20 years. Um, I mean, the, we forgot how much artillery ammunition, how much uh, rockets, how much stuff gets used in in, in modern lethal combat. Um, The the amount of artillery ammunition, I don't know if if I'm repeating myself, you know, 180,000 rounds, that's about three weeks of intensive um, fighting. So, um, and our industrial base right now is not prepared to do that. No matter how much money we gave to Lockheed, it would be a year before we saw any noticeable increase in the production of javelins. I mean, it's just, so so this, this is an issue for us. And of course, understandably, nobody's parliament or Congress or Bundestag wants to pay a lot of money for ammunition that sits in bunkers that you hope you'll never use. Um, so there, there's, a, there's a challenge here. And uh, the Russians uh, are going through a lot of ammunition. The Ukrainians are. So it, it's ammo. It's about um, maintenance. This is tedious stuff. But you know the story about all the Russian tires that were rotted. We spend hundreds of millions of dollars every year to maintain equipment that sits in storage in climate-controlled facilities so that when you draw it out in a crisis, it's ready to go. I mean, people are changing seals, tires are being rotated, all of that. The Russians clearly have not uh, invested in that. Um, So there's a logistics aspect to this. Uh, the, The second big thing I think is about What we call jointness, where you bring together air, land, sea, special forces. Not once, not one day in this conflict so far have I seen a shred of Russian joint warfare, where the air forces were in support of ground forces, where what the Navy was doing was enabling maneuver anywhere. It's like there are three completely separate uh, entities that are not helping each other, which is good for Ukraine. Because when you start bringing all that together, it significantly increases the effect. And it's just not in their culture. And for us, it took the Congress to force us to do it with the Goldwater-Nichols Act because we didn't want to do it either. And, um, and it's hard as hell. You have to practice it all the time. And uh, this, again, the value of the importance of being able to conduct joint operations. Until they can do that, they're never going to get Odessa ever. They're never going to get Kiev, and I don't think they'll be able to hang on to what they've got. Um, yeah, and I think stop. Ben,
3: I think what Ben's talking about is exactly that. those are the key topics that go to, that go to you know, military prowess, military effectiveness, uh, and and uh, and and then you know, Ben, I, I maybe you might just give us your thoughts on on you know these are capabilities you don't you don't regain overnight, right? You don't you don't build you know the ability to conduct combined arms and joint operations overnight. You don't change your culture from overly centralized to decentralized operations. You don't take units that have been, that have been shredded like these Russian units and build cohesive, confident teams that, that are ready to engage in close combat, right? I mean, so when, when, it, when I hear about like the regrouping and the refitting, you talked about this at the beginning, you know, th- this is I think uh, this is a myth. It's not going to be able to happen. I, I can't see. You know, we keep hearing about 93 battalion tactical groups. right? But they, they look like shells to me. Right. These these battalion tactical groups. And so what, what's your what's your prognosis on Russian's, uh, Russia's ability where they decide to to mobilize, to 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 address what they've seen as these egregious shortcomings in their combat effectiveness?
1: Well, um, uh... To do all those things, um, you would have to have a a culture within the institutions that promote and uh, encourage learning. I mean, I've always believed that the best organizations, the best units I ever saw were learning organizations and and had built in where the commander emphasized what we call the AAR, the After Action Review. All right, let's talk about what happened. You know, I screwed this up. How do we fix these things? And uh, even in combat, you know, units still go through. I'm sure uh, HR did this uh, when he was fighting. Um, After an operation, you bring the lead guys back and say, okay, what happened here? How how do we fix this? How do we improve this? And uh, the Russians are absolutely not stupid. I mean, there's no doubt about that. But I don't know that they have the culture that encourages the sort of uh, public Self-reflection uh, necessary to fix serious problems, um, including command structure. So,
2: it, I mean, so I was reading about uh, um, Russian soldiers that are um, picking up washing machines and taking them back to uh, to Russia with them. And the comment in the article was, "In modern armies, don't loot." Which I thought was very deep because, you know, for thousands of years, the main thing that armies did is went around, (laughs) brought home, brought home what they could. Uh, Modern armies don't loot. Well, when you have an army whose culture is corruption, is is get the washing machines, uh, truck them back to Russia, sell them, and your officer gets a 20% cut. uh, That's going to be very hard to turn that into a, a, you know, a a low level decision combined arms uh, effective force uh, very soon.
3: Yeah, I would I would say disciplined professional um, militaries don't do it, and and you know Ben, you know I, I, you know I, I think a lot about the warrior ethos, right, and the need to preserve it in our in our own armed forces. You know the and this is a you know the covenant that we have with one another uh, in terms of our expectations of professional and ethical conduct, but also the covenant between our military and our society, and and really based on. On principles like like honor and courage and self sacrifice and, you know, I, I just don't see that in the Russian armed forces, Ben. I mean, I it, this is something I think we kind of we kind of missed, right? I don't think we realized how much it had decayed prior to this attack on Ukraine.
1: Well, certainly I I missed it. I'm guilty of uh, overestimating uh, Russian capabilities. You know, the uh, I I talked to some of my Navy friends about the sinking of the Muskler. Um I said, what, what, do you, what do you think about this? I mean, what, what's the significance of it? And, of course, you know, right off the top, they talk about, you know, this is the flagship, so there's practical implications, there's symbolic implications. But one of them um, pointed out to me, he said, you know, the, from the picture that we all saw of the ship when as it was listing, uh, clearly had been damaged shortly before it sank. You know, Navy guys could look at that and point out, OK, there was obviously a fire the length of the ship underneath the deck. Um, and you could tell that, uh, of course, by the way, it'd be dangerous as hell. But there was no apparent attempt to save that ship. I mean, they unassed that thing as fast as they could. And in the U.S. Navy, I love our Navy, except when it's Army-Navy football. Um, our, our Navy, the ethos is ship, shipmate self in priority. Everything is about saving that ship, no matter what. And our sailors, every day that they are underway, they're practicing a fire. They're practicing uh, water (laughs) damage. You know, is the ship watertight and various other type emergencies. And they practice it all the time. And it's the ethos that you do everything to save that ship, and then look after your shipmate, and then yourself. And it, it appears that the Russian Navy, the great Black Sea Fleet, uh, which is mostly conscripts anyway, does not have that same ethos, that this, you know, save the ship no matter what. And then the fact that they couldn't even be honest, well, we got everybody off. Well, actually there's about 200 sailors never made it home. And so the this culture, of corruption and just flat out dishonesty, that pervades everything. And that's how you end up with people that feel it's okay to murder innocent civilians. And of course Putin has already redesignated the unit responsible for the murder in Bucha as a guards unit. I mean, that's the highest honor you can give to a Russian unit is they get the designation guards. And so there's the ethos um, that, uh, we're talking about and that that cannot survive that, that can't be successful in the long run because it erodes the stuff that makes units effective is trust moral character right
3: i mean it's just the it's just a collapse of, of the moral character and hey ben i i mean i don't want to monopolize the questions here but i also want to get your thoughts on this because we're talking about this covenant you know, between militaries and societies. What happens in Russian society now, Ben? I mean, I know I know you're looking at it from Germany, which is, you know, I know you're not looking at it from Moscow, but when I think about, it, and I also want to know, what are your estimates on casualties? Because, you know, what I've heard is, that as a reliable figure, is 15,000 killed. You know, rule of thumb would be three to one of, of that would be wounded. So that would be 45,000 wounded, probably less because so many are dying of wounds because that's a big part of the logistics failure is the lack of effective um, medical care forward. But, you know, what if it's 30,000 wounded, 15,000 killed in action, whatever, what are your numbers I'd like to know. But then what the heck happens, man, in, in, in Russia? You know, Putin has always tried to conceal the casualties like with the moskva you know, like when we clashed with the Russian mercenaries in Syria in February, 2018. Uh, what's, what's your, I mean, get out your crystal ball again, man, here for a minute. <laughs> like, what, what happens in, in, in Moscow, in Russia uh, over the next couple of years?
1: Well, uh, interestingly, the vast majority of Russian troops come from outside of Moscow and St. Petersburg. They come from the ethnic hinterlands. Um, so you won't see too many funeral processions in Moscow or St. Petersburg because there's no troops that come from there, for, for starters. So that's that shields a big part of the public from the fact that there are at least 15,000. That's the number I accept. I, uh, I, I've always thought the Ukrainian numbers were too high. Of course, my own soldiers exaggerated too. So I mean, this is kind of a natural thing. But the the British intelligence and Bellingcat, I think, are probably the most reliable sources for these kind of things. Um, Bellingcat says 600 Russian tanks have been destroyed. That's I mean, that's uh, you, if you assume that that right there tells you three or four times six hundred, that's two and a half thousand troops right there, just from the tanks that were destroyed. Let alone everything else.
3: And I think I think it's something, isn't it? Been like something like uh, like uh, gosh, you know, you know, three thousand armored vehicles overall, or something like that, or is well, that right? Probably
1: so. But you know, uh, uh, there's so many different types of armored vehicles. Yeah, but in terms of tanks. Now, um, and that 600 is two years of production. It would take two, years, you know, normal production rates for the Russian defense, interest two years of production that are, that are gone now. And what they've got sitting in storage, you can imagine the condition it's in. I, I asked, uh, when I was in Finland last week, I asked the former army chief, I said, uh, how come the Russians have not mobilized their reserves? And he laughed, and you know, the Finns are the best in the world at rapid mobilization. Um, he said, Well, they would be humiliated. They've got a terrible system. They, ha- they haven't practiced it, and they've got no equipment to give them. So that's why they haven't done it. And then they would also have to explain to the public why did this special technical operation, um, why are we having to Fire mobilize
0: mobilization. Yeah.
1: I thought we were being welcomed as liberators. So there's, there's some problems there uh, for them that even the Kremlin has to take into account um, the, uh, uh, what the population thinks. And I don't know if you can hide 15,000 dead and then the, whatever the number of wounded is, that three to one is probably a good estimate. Um, it, it will be hard to hide that.
2: I wanna go back to two things uh, you mentioned. One is, um, how can it take a year to ramp up uh, javelin production? What is wrong with our defense industry? In World War II, the P-51 went from a dream to shooting the Germans in under a year, uh, and we can't even ramp up something that we got the blueprints on in a year? So the question one, I got question two, but, but uh, this, this uh, running out of, uh, of ammo on our side Seems to be uh now I know HR is gonna want to go and put in tariffs on China to solve this problem, but <laughs> this seems like what, what is this like getting building permits in Palo Alto?
1: <laughs> well, well, John, let me ask you a question first if you'll if you'll because I'm interested in this also. Is it how hard will it be for the president to liquidate the Russian assets that have been frozen? I mean, I read something by uh Lawrence tribe in the post uh, a couple weeks ago when he said he he said that the president has the authority to actually do that. I'm sure it's not that simple. But I mean, does that sound I mean, that's several hundred billion uh, dollars that could be used to pay for a lot of this.
2: Well, the the, the problem of the U.S. government is not money. (laughs) And, you know, in in the COVID uh, business, we printed up $5 trillion with them, printed up and borrowed $5 trillion uh, to hand out checks to people for good and bad reasons. So, uh, you know, if we're talking about a couple billion dollars here, that is just couch change and having to, we don't have to liquidate the Russian central bank assets to do that. Now, there's a separate question whether this is a good or bad idea. Um, uh, and, and I think we ought to be really careful about this. There is sort of a, a rule of law on property. Uh, holding it for a while is one thing, uh, grabbing it, seizing it, and selling it. Uh, the Chinese, everybody else has noticed, whoa, we don't want to keep, we don't want to hold dollars anymore. We want Bitcoin or something else because it might just evaporate. And I'm also a little troubled about, uh, you know, just grabbing oligarchs wealth. Well, who's an oligarch and who isn't? Uh, You know, at least some sort of security of property and legal remedy before your wealth gets taken. But it's just not, um, there's that separate issues. It's just, there's no financial constraint on anything we wanna do regarding this war until we start getting into the trillions of dollars. So, uh, you know, Lockheed, uh, you know, I'll, I'll pay you 10 times as much, get those things out
3: now. And they're, I'm surprised. I think a lot. big part of the problem, John, and then Ben, I'd love to hear what you think about this, is just the capacity, right? The, the just the, the manufacturing capacity. We've had anemic defense budgets for a long time. We have a bow wave of deferred modernization. Our stocks, you know, aren't as high as they should be now, especially what we provided to Ukraine. But this has all been a symptom of anemic defense budgets. I mean, relative to what the requirements are, but then also the lack of multi-year predictable budgeting. So if you're going to open another assembly line, if you're Lockheed Martin or your General Dynamics or whatever, you want to know that that assembly line is going to be in operation for long enough for you to make a profit. So what we're, what we're not doing is giving the defense industry the ability to predict you know, what they need to manufacture. Now now when you look at aircraft and ship manufacturing we're even in worse shape you know and and so it takes us so long these days now too to to buy stuff right so 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 companies just get tired of dealing with the government they don't want to they don't want to deal with the u.s government on on contracting because it's just so frustrating i mean we've been trying to get a new tank a new new combat uh vehicle uh you know for for infantrymen and scouts you know for you know for over a decade so you know i just think Ben, what, what are your thoughts about it? I think that's the Budget Control Act, it's lack of predictability in the budget, and anemic. You know, I mean, people look at the numbers, they think it's not anemic, but they don't understand how, you know, where the money goes. An right. anemic uh, modernization and procurement budget.
2: So this sounds like the peacetime army where there isn't the hurry up. And you know, that's what our prediction are in 19 in the 1930s defense well, procurement was exactly what you just said a lot of politics a lot of a lot yeah. of uh, bureaucracy In December 7 1941 all of a sudden being nope Henry Kaiser build us some ships yeah. we want them tomorrow
3: <laughs> you know Ben wasn't yeah, it yeah. Marshall didn't Marshall say when you have the time you don't have the money and yeah. then when you have the money you don't have the time I think you know I think that's the danger we have now yeah
1: well I I think uh if, if Lockheed, if the demand was put on Lockheed or, or pick any company, if the demand was there, they would respond. But uh, up until now, there's not been a demand for uh, three shifts, you know, t- 24-7 operation and uh, the things, the the type of weapons. We're not talking about just regular old artillery ammunition. We're talking about uh, precision munitions and uh, sophistication that get, Components come from all over the place, and so there's one place that makes this thing. There's another to make, and then they get assembled there in uh, in Troy, Alabama, which is where President Biden was today, visiting Troy, where they make javelin. That's the place. And so, um, the uh, if if the government said, okay, I, I need you to double javelin output, not only so we can keep giving them to the Ukrainians, but we got to refill our own War stocks, which we have begun to deplete, in order to give them to um, uh, Ukraine. I think that um, I, I was talking to somebody the other day about how many uh, missiles the uh, the Emirates have launched, protecting themselves against uh, Yemen. Something. Yeah, yeah, the hoodies. I mean, hundreds. Hundreds of these things are going up. Um, These weapons cost a ton, they're millions of dollars per interceptor. Um, And they've shot hundreds of them against drones.
3: We're talking about Patriots now.
1: Yeah, I'm sorry. Patriots, which is our basic uh, uh, middle altitude uh, missile defense system. Okay. And um, the expenditure of these munitions is. significant, but the cost is also significant. And so what I've encouraged people at Raytheon and Lockheed to do is like, okay, well, take a look. You've got a a real-world, real-time example of Ukraine. If we had patriots there, how many times would you have, to get a a sense of what the requirement would be, if you're fighting somebody like Russia that's that's launched over a thousand cruise missiles, I mean, how many many patriot interceptors are we going to Need to have ready to go. I well, guarantee like we don't have somebody
2: a didn't think we thought about how much do we want in stockpile, but somebody didn't think you know if a real shooting war breaks out, we're going to want to be producing these things really fast. And well, we, that goes to the old uh, adage: Do you want to have a, the defense you can afford
1: or the defense you can need? I mean, or how much threat can you afford? That's is, is uh, kind of where we are.
0: Well, I might also well go to the thinking that we never thought that Ukraine would be at this point seventy days into this war, still holding out and giving them fits. So I'm getting the sign that we're running out of time here. So let's go around the horn quickly. HR, I'd like to start with you. If we go back to the original uh, premise of this show, the May ninth, uh, Victory Day in Russia. If there's a new phase of the war starting after that, HR, what do you think the new phase looks like, and what what will you be looking at in particular?
3: You know, I think it's what Ben was talking about. I think what you're going to have is a failed Russian offensive. They can't, as we all, we're all talking about, I mean, they, they, can't, they can't fix themselves in this amount of time. Uh, and then they're going to reach what Ben said at the beginning, the culminating point. When, when, the, when the defense becomes stronger than the offense – and then you're going to see the, the Ukrainians marshal a counterattack force to drive them back and to retake their territory. It's going to be long. It's going to be bloody. We've talked a lot about Russian deficiencies, but you know what? It doesn't take much talent, much capability, uh, and much competence to, to rubble cities uh, and to and to attack residential areas. Um, so w- w- with the lack of discrimination and use of firepower, so it, it's going to be continue to be a bloody war. I mean, we, you know, it's something you don't, you want to celebrate the, you, the Ukrainians, courage, determination, the sacrifices they're making. Uh, but, but, you know, it's, it's not a h- time to high five, uh, because they're, they're still bleeding every day and, and, uh, and doing everything they can to defend their country.
0: John, you've been following this from just all kinds of angles, economics, the Russian fighting, man, what, what are you looking at?
2: Well, the uh, things I've told you about, uh, I, as a amateur, uh, I get to hang out with these great guys. Uh, what does it look like when Russia is losing? How does it lash out?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Uh, that That's something that, that worries me. And I think that's where we're going next. And I just wanna, in my last one, um, I wanna credit these two guys. Um, since Vietnam, uh, something amazing has happened in the American military. Uh, I'm only now learning, thanks to you guys, about joint operations, about about the trust, about the warrior ethos, and, and the professionalism of our troops, how amazingly well-trained we are. Every other peacetime army turns out to look like the Russian army. It becomes bureaucratic, it becomes corrupt. Every other branch of the American government is falling apart, and the armies look like DMVs if you leave them alone for a while, yet somehow you guys and your companions created this this wonderful uh, machine that really knows what it's doing. I, and I hope you can keep it intact. Okay. General Hodges, what are you looking at?
1: John, thank you. Um, first of all, of course, we're going to listen to the language. I'm, I'm anxious to hear what uh, comes out on May the 9th. What does President Putin say? What's What, what kind of threats, what kind of claims, and, and so on? That, that'll be useful to uh, gauge uh, direction. Um, although I don't want us to sit and wait to see what they're going to do, we've got to be looking for the initiative, and I, th- I think Ukrainians are, are doing that. Secondly, Sweden and Finland, are at least Finland on 12 May, are, is going to declare that it's ready to join the alliance, and it's going to ask to join. I think Sweden, if not on the 12th, probably right after that, uh, will also ask to join, which is remarkable. Um, uh, but this, you can add this to the long list of strategic failures uh, by President Putin. Um, I think that we've got to fix the logistics inside Ukraine. Uh, No matter how much we commit and promise to deliver, if it doesn't get into the hands of soldiers that have got to use it, then it's for naught. And and so I think there's probably some really good people uh, working hard on how how do we help Ukraine in, in that regard. Longer term... Um, post-conflict, I think Secretary Austin has already talked about um, what we need to do from a security standpoint. But, you know, there's 11 million Ukrainians that um, have left their homes. Uh, About half of them are in Germany or or Germany or Poland or Romania or other European countries. Um, And about half of them are displaced inside Ukraine. So the European Union is going to have a real interest in helping these people go back home. So there's going to be a massive whether it's a Marshall Plan or something like that, to begin the reconstruction of Ukraine, and you can be sure with all of the firepower that's been thrown around, there are thousands and thousands of pieces of unexploded ordnance lying everywhere. I mean, which will really make it very dangerous for kids, uh, but also make it difficult to start clearing up and and and, and rebuilding things. So you've got a massive uh, UXO. Uh, challenge and of course millions of people depend on Ukraine for food in Africa and the Middle East and uh, unstable governments have real problems when their populations are not able to eat so there's a uh, there's a, uh, a ripple effect there but at the end of the day Ukraine is going to win I, I just don't I don't know how long it's going to take but the commitment of the United States to that W word. Um, is really important and i hope the president's able to see that through i
2: could don't you guys see at the end of this there's a light at the end of the tunnel which is a united ukraine that's liberal democratic united with the west probably part of nato formally or informally uh we got boatloads of money which i hope we don't waste on our way in but it could be a great development opportunity uh so i think a couple of years down the line, this could be it Ukraine could look like a very this could be its formative experience and it could be a very peaceful, prosperous country. Great way to
1: say it, that's a great way. this is Just like New Zealand and Australia discovered their sense of nationalism after Gallipoli in the first world war. and I think this is Ukraine is is discovered this um, in this in this crisis.
0: Okay. We're going to call it a day at that. Uh, General Agius, thanks for coming on. Thanks for staying up so late in Germany. I hope we were worth the wait and come back on the show at some point.
3: Hey, Ben, I I don't, sorry. I I know you're wrapping up and I'm screwing this up, but I just (laughs) want to just acknowledge how much I've learned from Ben across my career. I did today here as well. I remember first really getting to know you in Mosul when I was traveling around with uh, General Abizade, taking notes for when I would have the privilege to command the third Cav regiment and then we served alongside each other multiple times in iraq and in afghanistan man great to see you thank you so much for everything you continue to do to strengthen our alliance and and uh and to support the ukrainians it was great great to see you again same here HR. thank you
0: okay i'm going to try it one more time that's it for this episode of wait 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 <laughs> wait
3: <laughs> i had no, to think- say that man it's my buddy here you know you it's- did all i right. All right. understood. here.
0: Uh, a bookkeeping note for our viewers. Uh, we're going to take next week off. We'll be back the week after that. I think we're getting Neil back. And we're going to have Victor Davis Hanson on the show. So you don't want to miss that. Best way to not miss our show. Subscribe to our show and also like our show. Give us a few likes. Yes, we're vain. We like to get likes as much as anybody else. So subscribe to us like us if you will. On behalf of my colleagues, John Cochran, H.R. McMaster, all of us here at the Hoover Institution, our special guest today, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, we hope you enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for watching.
2: If you enjoyed this show and are interested in listening to more content featuring H.R. McMaster, subscribe to Battlegrounds,
3: also available at hoover.org slash battlegrounds.